Thank you, Gordon and Barbara, for our music this morning. And welcome to those of you joining us on live stream for our Sunday morning message. We're in Galatians chapter 4. As we're in the second half of the book, at least, this is message number 18, we're going to finish up chapter 4 today in kind of a long extended passage from 21 to 31, but uh, there's no other way we can really take this. We need to look at it all as, as one passage, so we will do it. It's a very interesting uh, portion, uh, maybe one of the most interesting uh, portions in the book, and you notice uh, that in verse 21, Paul kind of introduces this passage by saying, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? That's been his theme, isn't it? That Judaizers had come into Galatia and uh, told the believers there that they need to keep the Mosaic law. As a matter of fact, they went so far as to say, if you don't keep the Mosaic law, you're not saved. So it was a pretty serious thing uh, that he was saying. But at the end of verse 21, he says, do you not hear the law? That is, he is going to tell us that in the very law itself is the announcement that the law is going to end. Now, the New Testament writers have done that often in Hebrews chapter 7, when the writer of Hebrews introduces the new priest, Melchizedek, not the old Aaronic priesthood, but the new priest, Melchizedek, who, of course, is Jesus Christ, the type. And he says, for if the priesthood is changed, it's necessary that the whole law changes. If you have a, if you have a change in the priesthood, you have to have a change in everything. So the Bible often says the law announces within itself that it has a timeline and it's going to end someday. So it says that. That's an interesting part of, of this whole passage that uh, he picks this analogy out of the Old Testament and says, for this reason, the law is over and we're now in the age of grace. The other interesting thing about this passage is in verse 24 with that word in the King James Version, allegory, in our new King James Version, symbolic, though that Greek word is allegoria, which it means allegory. It comes from that word allegory. An allegory... Me, especially in that Greek word, allegoreo, in, in the verb, means to speak by another, to speak by some comparison with something else. Now, it, we have to define this word, but here's the problem, that when we read a word that was used 2,000 years ago, and you look it up in a dictionary today, you're going to get a different meaning. Because words change over that time, don't they? And we know that in the scripture from another, a number of other words, of course, uh, that we have. And because you have those different words, uh, we're not so sure exactly what it means. The word wine, for example, if uh, you take the biblical word oinos and then look up the word for wine today, you'll get two different definitions. Or remember that we will not prevent them which are asleep. From 1611, the word prevent uh, means proceed, but to us today it means totally different. So when we read the word allegory, we have to be careful, and, and I mean it for this reason. There is a broad movement going on today that we should take the Bible allegorically or typologically, 
which means that uh, in, in their definitions, and I just finished reading a book this week on this very thing, where basically these guys are saying that none of the prophecies in the Old Testament concerning the future of Israel, concerning the kingdom of God that Jesus will establish on the earth, all of that has been fulfilled typically, typologically, allegorically in Jesus Christ in his first coming. And there is no second coming to be fulfilled. That's what the allegorical interpretation does for us. As a matter of fact, Hank Hanegraaff, you know, the Bible answer man, which uh, many of us have listened to, he calls allegorical interpretation the golden key to biblical interpretation. Disappointing to hear somebody like that say, this is the way we need to take it. So I'm just saying, we'll deal with this word allegory, uh, the way it is used in the New Testament and what Paul says for it. I like the word symbolic in the new translation. I really like the word analogy. I think the New Testament, or, or excuse me, the, the, the modern day word analogy would fit very well here. I'm going to use an analogy. I'm going to go back and talk about Hagar and Ishmael. I'm going to talk about Sarah and Isaac and draw an analogy from their life to ours. And that's basically what Paul is doing here. So you have in our passage Hagar, Ishmael, Mount Sinai, all of those things, as Paul is going to use them, represent human effort and bondage under the Mosaic law. That's what he's comparing. Uh, Ishmael was born out of the flesh, not by promise. He decided to go do it himself with Hagar and had a son, but that's not the promised son. And so then we have Sarah, Isaac, and Jerusalem rather than Sinai, and that represents the son that came by promise or by faith. And so Paul in this whole passage is comparing doing it by the flesh, which the Judaizers were trying to get them to live by the law, or doing it by the faith in God's promise, which is, of course, salvation by faith alone. Now, I want you to look at that outline I have, uh, be, because really it's not so much an outline as it is a chart. <laughs> I, I decided to just chart this out for you so that you have two covenants. He's going to talk about two covenants, and under each of these covenants, the old being the Mosaic law, the new being the Abrahamic, you have an analogy made, Hagar, Ishmael, bondwoman, as opposed to the analogy under the other covenant, which is Sarah, Isaac, and the free woman. And you have then an application from both Sinai, Mosaic law, bondage, as compared in the other covenant to Jerusalem and Abrahamic faith and freedom. So in this passage, we, we skip back and forth a little bit because he brings all of these terms in at different times into this explanation. So I hope we'll make it plain, and as we go through this, you'll, you'll see what's happening. So you have this kind of chart in front of you. Uh, help, let me uh, help you explain what is here. We really begin in 21 and 22 with Paul's kind of introduction to this again. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? As, 
as uh, I have explained already, Paul's real purpose here is to contrast law and grace. And by the way, that's why I have the, the uh, title to my sermon, Law and Grace, is what he's comparing. And in verse 22, he says, as it is written, Abraham had two sons. Uh, actually, he had a lot of sons, but these are the two that he's comparing. One by a bondwoman. That would be Hagar, wouldn't it? The, the slave girl, the, the servant girl. The other by a free woman. That would be Sarah. And so we know that he's talking about Ishmael first and Isaac later. All right? So that's up front. Ishmael will always represent human effort. Again, rather than waiting on God's promise for the son that was supposed to come, he goes and, and has a son by Hagar, who is Ishmael. It represents the human effort trying to do it on your own. And God will come back to Abraham and say, sorry, that's not the son I mean. I'm giving you a son by promise. And so, so Isaac will always represent faith in God's promises, waiting for the son that he's going to give. And of course, though it wasn't a miracle birth like a virgin birth, it was, uh, it was a great work of God for a woman at 90 years old and a man at 100 years old to have a child, even in those days. So it's an act of faith. So with those two verses kind of as introduction here, we go into this. First of all, here is the covenant of law uh, I'm saying here. And I have law and faith, and I'm going to explain the covenant of faith as the Abrahamic covenant, but we'll get to that in a minute because he's, he's, he's comparing law and, and grace, law and faith. So here's the analogy, verse 23. He who was of the bond woman was born according to the flesh, as I have said and he of the free woman through promise. We know the bondwoman would be Hagar. The free woman would be Sarah, of course. So first of all, we direct our attention toward Hagar. Her, her name is given, of course, at the end of verse 24 and the beginning of verse 25. So we know that this bondwoman, we, we know who we're talking about here. It is Hagar. Let me take you back, and, I, and I'll read just a few verses from Genesis but uh, you don't have to turn with me, but basically we're going back to Genesis 15, 16, or 17. It was in those chapters that you, uh, we have the story of, of Abraham and Sarah and Hagar and so forth. In chapter 16, 1 and 2 of Genesis, now Sarah, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children. We have that expression, the barren one down in verse 27. And she had an Egyptian maidservant whose name was Hagar. So Sarah said to Abram, see now the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I shall obtain children by her. And Abraham heeded the voice of Sarah. So again, their own human effort to make the promise come about because she didn't have any children, uh, this is the way they do it. Now, by the way, it wasn't so uncommon. If, if a man did not have a son by the wife, he often did have a son by the handmaid, and she was counted for his son, 
and he inherited what a normal or a natural son would have, would have inherited. So in Genesis chapter 30, about Rachel, you know, and Jacob. So Rachel said to Jacob, here is my maid Bilhah, go into her and she will bear a child on my knees that I may have children by her. And then here's Leah, another wife of, of uh, Jacob, who said, she saw that she had stopped bearing. She took Zilpah, her maid, and gave her to Jacob as a wife. So it wasn't unusual in those days. I'm, I'm not advocating it or suggesting that, that you do this. I'm just saying this in biblical history, there were times when these kinds of things were done, and this was one of them. But here's the, here's the thing. That's in Genesis 16. It was in Genesis 15 that God came to Abraham and said, I'm going to give you a son. And that son will be born to Sarah, your son born to Sarah. As a matter of fact, that is why we have in chapter 15, verse 6, that oft-quoted verse that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. So Abraham's faith comes in chapter 15. But his effort in doing something by the flesh follows in chapter 16. Interesting. But that's not the end of it. It's in chapter 17 that God comes back to Abraham and Sarah and says, no, not this way. I told you, I will give you a son. And that's where you have Abraham and Sarah both laughing at what God has promised, remember? And God scolds them for laughing. And of course, in the end, they're the one that gets the laugh because, sure enough, Sarah becomes pregnant and has this son. So you have this beautiful analogy, if you will, from the Old Testament. Faith, and then, no, we're going back and doing it ourselves, and God coming back and saying, no, it's by faith, not by your effort. What was happening in, in uh, Galatia? They were saved by the preaching of Paul. These Judaizers come in and say, no, let's do it by, by the flesh. God comes back with the book of Galatians and says, no, it's going to be by faith. So this beautiful parallel, if you will, analogy from the Old Testament happens here. So there's Hagar. And then, of course, you have Ishmael. Now, his name uh, is in verse 23 and verse 29. It's all the way up to verse 30 that he says he will not be an heir. It's the heir, the, the son that I promised, the one that, is, that the seed of Messiah is going to come through, is not going to be by Ishmael. It's going to be by the son that I promise to give you, and that is by Isaac. Now, Ishmael then was older, of course, uh, maybe even a teenager when uh, he and, and Hagar are, are sent away, sent out of the house. Merle Unger in his, in his uh, uh, Bible uh, encyclopedia says, and this was written in the 1950s, he says, Ishmaelites, a general name for all of the Abrahamic peoples from Egypt to the Euphrates and perhaps the entire Persian Gulf, their headquarters being in Western Arabia. 
And so these Ishmaelites really spread out too. They were, they were quite a nation. As a matter of fact, in Genesis 21, 13, yet God says, I will also make a nation of the son of the bondwoman because he is your seed. And since he was Abraham's child, uh, we have Ishmaelites, Arabs sometimes we call them. We have these children uh, of the bondwoman who, by the way, are still fighting with the children of Sarah, right? And so uh, here is Ishmael, and these things are happening. Uh, today, almost all of Ishmael's descendants are Muslim because they have gone to a religion of the flesh themselves, trying to earn their way to heaven and so forth. So it's in verse 29, at the end of verse 29, where he says, who was born, there's one born according to the spirit and one according to the flesh, even so it is now. 2,000 years later in Paul's day, you still got Ishmaelites and you've got uh, Israelites. Uh, and it was going on then, it is still going on today. So Hagar and the product of the human flesh is Ishmael. Again, what is Paul saying? Where does, where does spiritual life come from? Where does salvation come from? Out of Isaac or out of Ishmael? Where does it come from? You believe in Christ for, for salvation, right? That's out of Isaac. It's not out of Ishmael. He's pointing that out, and he's paralleling that to your spiritual life cannot come by the work of your flesh like Isaac or Ishmael was produced by. Your spiritual life has to come by the work of faith which is how Isaac was born. Now, thirdly, in this analogy, uh, Hagar is called the bond woman four different, uh, or three different times at least, 22, 23. We have here verse 30. Uh, she is the bond woman. So uh, in this, uh, in Genesis 21, verse 10, let me... Let me uh, Go back and read these few verses to you. Genesis 21, 10. Therefore she said to Abraham, Get uh, or cast out this bondwoman and her son, for the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, namely with Isaac. And the matter was very displeasing in Abraham's sight because of his son. But God said to Abraham, Do not let it be displeasing in your sight, because of the lad or because of your bondwoman, whatever, whatever Sarah has said to you, listen to her voice, for in Isaac your seed shall be called. And so here is a bondwoman uh, who has a son uh, by the work of the flesh, and we're told, cast her out and her son, that is, send her away, because that's not the heir. I will give you the heir in Isaac and in Jacob, who is renamed as Israel. And one of the reasons even today Israel, the children of Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and so forth, uh, are the people of God, still heirs of this land, still heirs of these promises. So the analogy is that way. And then there's an application made to this Old Testament uh, analogy, these characters, and that's in verses 24 and 25. So, which things are symbolic or an allegory, if you will, uh, or 
uh, a comparison, a similarity, and here's what they are. These are the two covenants. That's why I have at the top of your chart there, of your, you have a covenant of law, the Mosaic covenant. You have a covenant of faith, which will be the Abrahamic and the new covenant. These two covenants, one from Mount Sinai. Which one is that? Well, that's the law, right? It was given on Mount Sinai, which gives birth to what? <laughs> Bondage, which I'm representing by Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. Now, such a compliment to a woman hasn't been made since the Song of Solomon, you know. Uh, so, uh, you know, she's Mount Sinai is what she is. But you get, you get the similarity, right? You get the comparison. What, what is being done at Mount Sinai? Here's the Mosaic law. You must keep this law. You must do these things, not for salvation, but to please God. You must do these things. So these are Mount Sinai, and and uh, says these are the new covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. Hagar is Mount Sinai. In Arabia, by the way, we had Arabia mentioned in chapter 1, verse 17, where Paul, when he was converted, went over into Arabia, uh, and God taught him there, if you remember, and then he came back. We had a discussion back then about where was this Arabia, but what we found out was there was a Nabataean Empire, as it's called, and that empire went all the way from Damascus way up here, all the way down to the Sinai Peninsula, where Sinai or, or Mount uh, Sinai is, and so uh, this whole area over on the west uh, in Paul's day, all were descendants of Ishmael, and all were part of that Nabataean empire. So Sinai, everything about Hagar and Ishmael speaks of works and works of the flesh. It represents the law of Moses. And here Paul is trying to tell these believers, that is not what we follow. We don't keep the law any longer. Just as they were cast out of the house, you need to cast this out of your house too. So all of that was given at Mount Sinai in Arabia over there. Now, Mosaic Law I have secondly in, in this category uh, because obviously this is what he's talking about. Uh, the Mosaic Law, he mentions in verse 21, don't you hear the law? Now again, two covenants mentioned in verse 24. Obviously, here he's speaking about the covenant of, of law. Now, re remember, folks, just generally, that there are two kinds of covenants. There, there, there's this uh, uh, covenant that uh, takes a response, a two-way covenant, uh, where you have to do something and God will, will answer. And then there are unconditional covenants, which is Abrahamic, Davidic and so forth, where God just says, here, I'm going to do it. Obviously, Abraham was a, uh, was, was a unilateral, they like that term today, unilateral covenant. I'm going to do this for you, Abraham, regardless of what you do. I'm going to give you a son, and I'm going to bring Messiah through that son, regardless of what you do. But the conditional covenant, which was, which was the mosaic, is you do this, and I'll do this. 
You keep the law, I'll bless you. You don't keep the law, I won't bless you. Very conditional. And so these two kinds of covenants uh, are mentioned here. One is the Old Testament law. The other is the Abrahamic type of covenant. Go back to chapter 3 and read just a few verses in chapter 3 from verse 10. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them, but that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, for even the law itself says the just shall live by faith. Yet the law is not of faith. The man who does them is going to have to live in them, he says. And so we know this refers to the Mosaic law. And again, the Judaizers were trying to put people back under the law. Just, just as though Abraham had faith in Genesis 15, in Genesis 16, he goes back under human effort to try to please God that way. And God comes back in Genesis 17 and says, no, not that way, the way I said. And that's what Paul is trying to do also. One other thing in this application is the word bondage. You have that in verse 24. You have it in verse 25. And what is the point here? If you think that you can live by the law, you are under bondage. If you think that this is the way you please God by keeping all of those Old Testament things, and that is under the law... I want to put a footnote right here. I've tried to make it clear, too, in our study of Galatians that the law was one dispensation. The law was one part of what we call Old Testament. It's just that most of the writing about it takes up all of that space, you know, from Exodus all the way to Malachi. But that's not all there was. Of course, you go all the way back to creation. You have, you have uh, uh, all of the characters leading up to Noah, and then you have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all of that. That's all before the law. So understand that we're not saying uh, that everything God ever said in the Old Testament don't pay any attention to. Of course we're not saying that. We're simply saying that God did something in the age of law that he later said, you don't have to do this anymore. That's all we're saying in the book of Galatians, all right? So, uh, if you will, go back to chapter 4 and look at the first three verses. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master of all, but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the Father. Even so we... When we were children, were in, there's our word, bondage under the elements of the world until the fullness of time, of course, had come. You see chapter 5, go back to where we were, and look at verse 1. What, what is he gonna, how is he going to apply this when he gets done with this whole analogy? Chapter 5, verse 1. Believers, stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free and do not be entangled again with a yoke of, there's our word, bondage. It, it, it happens throughout here. And no wonder in chapter 4, verse 11, he says, I'm afraid of you. And in chapter 4, verse 20, he says, I have doubts about you 
because you want to go back under this bondage. You, you want to live under that bondage when God has made you free? Like saying to Abraham, you want to try to have Messiah through your own physical effort rather than the way that I promised that you would have him? Yeah, that's what, exactly what he was trying to do. You know, in, in Acts chapter 15, where the, when they had this Jerusalem council, which is happening about the same time that Paul is writing the book of Galatians, Peter stands up in the Jerusalem church in, in Acts chapter 15, and he says in verse 10, Now therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we are able to bear? It won't work trying to keep the law of Moses. So one other point I want to make here before we leave in verse 25 so that you don't misunderstand this statement. Hagar's Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is and is in bondage with her children. What does that mean? It means that in the time of Paul, in the first century, the Jerusalem that in his day now is, is still trying to keep the law. That's what was going on. That's why he's being persecuted. That's why they crucified Jesus Christ. Because the Jerusalem that now was in Paul's time is, doesn't want to give up the law, doesn't want to accept that the Messiah has come. So they crucify the Messiah and they persecute the believers so still under bondage, they had the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the lawyers, the scribes, and all the leaders of that nation saying, no, 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 you must keep the law. And so even the Jerusalem that now is, as he puts it, is still under bondage. And he's trying to preach to them that they need to receive Christ by faith. Okay, so here's the covenant of law, okay? Let's Let's look, secondly, at the covenant of faith. These two covenants mentioned in verse 24 again would be the Mosaic covenant, the conditional one, and I say here the Abrahamic covenant, though that word is not used here, but it has been used throughout the book. One more time, go back to chapter 3, look at verse 6 of chapter 3. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness, chapter 15, of course, therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the nations by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, right out here's the Abrahamic covenant, Genesis chapter 12, in you shall all nations of the earth be blessed, so then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. So the Abrahamic covenant has been referred to throughout this book. That's the faith that he's talking about. Now, a little reminder here. That Abrahamic covenant, given back there in Genesis 12, 1, 2, and 3, had three parts to it. There's a land. I'm giving you this land. There's a seed, and that is Messiah will come through you. And I'm giving you a blessing, and that is one day I will rule on this earth and bring a universal blessing to the entire world. 
You have a Palestinian covenant within that. You have a Davidic covenant within that. And you have a new covenant within that. And so some people, in referring to this passage, call it the Abrahamic covenant. Some people call it the new covenant. But I think we can see both of those in this covenant of faith. All of that was by faith. In other words, when you come to the Lord Jesus Christ, you accepted him by faith, not by works. And because of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're still looking forward to something, aren't you? And that thing you're looking forward to is the new covenant. When universal peace is on this earth and Jesus Christ reigns in his kingdom. So he's referring to all of that here. So here's the analogy, beginning in verse 26. Jerusalem above is free. Let me uh, remind you, I have here the word Sarah first because she's the free woman mentioned in 22 and 23, right? The bondwoman was, was uh, Hagar, but the free woman then is Sarah, of course. Now, let me take you back to Genesis one more time to, to chapter 17 and verses 15 and 16. God is reiterating his promise to Abraham here. Then God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, I say it that way because the end of the word is A-I, Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah, A-H on the end, shall be her name. And you know why? Because Sarah means princess. And the word princess means a mother of kings. If you're a princess, you're going to bear kings. Let me go on. Verse 16, God says, and I will bless her and also give you a son by her. And then I will bless her and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. So her name is going to be Sarah because that's the one that I'm going to promise the seed out of. That's the one that is going to become the mother of nations that will rule on this earth. And you and I are, of course, part of that. Hebrews chapter 11, where she is mentioned, Hebrews 11, 11 says, By faith, Sarah herself received strength to conceive seed. She bore a child when she was past the age because she judged him faithful who had promised. And so here is Sarah, the free woman, that we have here, and she is the person of promise that is said here, that, that uh, she is free and she's above all. So you have a miracle and you have faith on her part. The miracle is, I will give you this son. The faith is, we're told in Hebrews 11, she believed God. She had to be convinced of it, but she believed God. Everything, therefore, about Sarah is faith without works. Everything mentioned here about Sarah, the free woman, uh, the, the one who, who uh, is going to bear the seed, everything about her is faith. Everything about Hagar was works of the flesh. And then there's Isaac, of course. And Isaac is named in verse 28. Isaac then represents the faith of Abraham. Again, Go back to uh, Genesis chapter 15. I'll read it to you. 15, 4 through 6 says this, or 4 and 6. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him, that is to Abraham, saying, This one shall not be your heir, not, not Ishmael, 
but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Verse 6, and he believed in the Lord, and it was counted to him for righteousness. So everything about Abraham and the Abrahamic covenant is by faith. Way back there before the law, they lived by faith. Under the law, they lived by the flesh. That's what he's pointing out, of course. And then Sarah is called, in this analogy, she's called the free woman, thirdly. 22, 23, 30, 31. We have this expression many times. She is the free woman. Sarah pictures the true wife who is free and blessed. Even Peter uses her as an expression in chapter 3. Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him, Lord, whose daughters you are, if you have the same kind of faith. So Paul wants them to be free, wants them to be children of Sarah, not children of Hagar. Are you with me so far? One more application then. Verse 27 is a quotation. You might even have it uh, uh, set off in, in your translation and you'll see a reference to uh, Isaiah 54, 1. And so let me remind you of verse 26 first. Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. So here's part of the application. What, what was the comparison? What city, what, what place, I should say, was referred to when we were talking about uh, uh, Hagar and Ishmael? What place? Sinai, right? Mount Sinai. What city is uh, represented by Sarah? Jerusalem, which above is free. Jerusalem above, not the one that now is that was still persecuting Paul, but Jerusalem that is above is free. And then you have this, this well, we'll come, let me come back to verse 27 in just a minute. I want to take a little sidetrack here and mention something about Jerusalem, which is above. That is your home, folks. When Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you, there's where he was going. In Hebrews 12, 18, in that chapter, the writer of Hebrews says, you have not come to the mountain that be, may be touched with fire. In other words, you, are, you have not come to Sinai. You didn't come there for your salvation. But then in verse 22, Hebrews 12, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven. Your name is registered in heaven in that Jerusalem which is above. That's why Jesus said, in my Father's house are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you. Paul says in Ephesians, listen to this, Ephesians 2, 4 and 6. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ, for by grace are you saved, and raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Your name is registered in heaven. You're children of the firstborn, uh, we're told in Hebrews, which means the moment you got saved, your name was, put, was registered there, and you belong to that city. You don't belong to this one. You don't belong to the human effort going on in this world. 
you belong to the Jerusalem which is above. <laughs> and then I have to add Revelation 21, where, where John is finishing the book of Revelation, and it says, And I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. That's why it's not so out of place for us to speak of Ernie, for example, who departed uh, a couple weeks ago to say he's walking on those streets of gold. He went to that place that, that the Lord is preparing for us that will one day come to this earth, which will one day be our heaven on earth. Jerusalem, which is above, which is free. And that's how you get there. Now, let me go on to this Abrahamic faith in verse 27 of our text. Rejoice, now, now again, Isaiah 54. Rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear. What does that mean? Who is that? That's Sarah. Sarah was barren. Sarah had no children. But you're supposed to rejoice, Sarah. Break forth and shout, you who do not travail. You haven't had children yet. For the desolate, meaning you, Sarah, has many more children than he who or she who has a husband, than Hagar that you gave to your husband. Well, there's a lot of children of Hagar. There's a lot of Ishmaelites out there in the world. But there aren't so many as there are children of Sarah. And one day her, her seed on this earth will be numeral, as numerated as the sand of the seashore and the stars of heaven. Rejoice. And I want, you, I want you to think about it. If you have a reference there to Isaiah 54.1, what comes just before that? What comes before Isaiah 54.1? What comes before 54, folks? 53, that's right. 53. And what great chapter is Isaiah 53? The Messiah who died for us. The suffering servant. If you put your faith in Isaiah 53, then Isaiah 54.1 is going to happen to you. You are going to be children of Sarah. You are going to be part of that heavenly Jerusalem, that Jerusalem which is above. So Abrahamic faith in the crucified Messiah makes you sons of Sarah and sons of God. So the freedom is Jerusalem above, verse 26, is free. So what then, how does he conclude all of this? Verse 30, nevertheless, what does the scripture say? It's in Genesis 21, 10, by the way. Cast out the bondwoman and her son. Now, you can say, well, that, that sounds kind of rough to do, and yeah, it was, but you remember God says, don't despair, Abraham. This is what you need to do. And what Paul is saying by quoting this verse is, listen, Galatian church, you need to get rid of these people. Excommunicate them. Get them out of your midst. You cannot have that kind of doctrinal mix that says you please God by the works of the law along with the preaching of faith. Get rid of this. You've let it come into your church. It should not be here. You need to cast these people out. That's that's why he quotes this verse, basically. And so, verse 31, he calls them brethren. So then, brethren, you believers, are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. Our faith comes in Genesis 15, not in Genesis 16.
And so hold on to that fact. You were saved by faith. Don't go back to the flesh. Now, I'm, I'm going to make four statements in conclusion here, okay, if you'll let me. Number one, though, it, though Ishmael today is still persecuting Isaac, the Ishmaelites who dwell in that land today still persecuting the child of faith. That's not Paul's point here, though that may be true historically. Paul's point is this, that you Judaizers who were Jews who were persecuting the believers and telling them to go back under the law, he's saying to them, don't to the church, don't follow them. Don't go back to observing the law in order to please God. You don't have to do those things anymore. And thirdly, Paul admonished then true believers, cast out, excommunicate, if you want to use the word, the Judaizers. You can't have this kind of mixed multitude in the church of God. You can't have two doctrines that are opposite. Now, there's disagreement over small things, sure, even within a church, but you can't have disagreement over the way of faith. You can't have disagreement over how you get saved, whether it's by works or by faith. And so it's got to go. You can't have this together. And fourthly, today, all ethnicities, Jew, Gentile, children of Isaac, children of Ishmael, can be part of the family of God. Not by the law of Moses, but by the law of faith. By coming to Jesus Christ by faith. You don't have to be a Jew. You don't have to be an American. You don't have to be any certain ethnicity. You just have to come to him by faith. And all others who don't are children of Ishmael by the flesh. I got this note this morning from our missionary in the Middle East. And I'm going to read this paragraph as I close. Thank you for your prayers, he says. Manano, a 24-year-old Afghani girl, just trusted Christ as her Savior. Anybody can. Whosoever will may come. Her father is incapacitated, her mother nearly so. She, out of desperation, had cut her wrist several times, hoping for a way out of her hopeless life. She said, I see how Jesus gives me hope. He's offered me life. Please pray for her, he says. All refugees are truly trapped in hopelessness of life, being trafficked and abused in modern-day slavery. Jesus Christ can and does still set the captives free. Isn't that exactly what Paul's talking about in our passage? Whosoever will may come. But you don't come by your own works of the flesh. You come by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, stand with me, if you will, as we think about this and go to the Lord in prayer. We'll sing a song of invitation. I trust that you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. If not, you need to trust him today. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this wonderful passage. It's kind of complicated. It kind of goes back and forth. We have to know our history a little bit, I guess, to understand it. But, Father, to see the parallels, to see what Paul is doing in this passage gives us confidence and, and, and uh, trust in our faith. And we thank you for it, that we, by faith, we can believe God and it's accounted to us for righteousness too. And so, Father, thank you for those who are being saved all over the world, trusting not in, their, not in the arm of the flesh, but in the hope of Christ. 
And so, Father, bless in that today, wherever the gospel is preached. Thank you for our meeting together here. Bless us, too, as we sing this song, as we let the Spirit speak to our hearts. I pray that everyone within the sound of my voice would know for sure that Jesus Christ is our Savior. We'll thank you for these things. In his name we pray. Amen. As Gordon comes and leads us, our invitation is always open as we sing or after our service is closed. I trust that you will respond in the way God's laid on your heart to do. Gordon. <laughs>